0: Some say that it's an orientation, that people are born this way. Others, that it's against nature and a choice. That's the same-sex question, the most divisive issue of our day, and a clash of cultures. Well, uh, week three of uh, this four... um, message series uh, when cultures clash and uh, we've been doing this survey um, online along the way and I thought it would be good at this point would you like to know some of the results of that that survey we don't have to do this if you're not up for it okay Um, all right here we go Um, so we asked the first question Um, let's just look at this Um, I believe that all same-sex activity is sin, uh, by that we meant same-sex sexual activity, um, acting upon attraction. And uh, not surprisingly, because this survey is done primarily right here among the community of faith, with probably a few people who have participated who are watching on video or uh, listening to the audio podcast, um, Eighty nine percent of people said um, of the and we had like two hundred and seventy two people respond to this survey. So eighty nine percent are saying that they believe it's sin, which we established last week. We'll talk more about this morning. Uh, secondly, I believe that same sex relationships are acceptable for Christians. There are five percent. And I think this is what's so telling for us is that five percent of those who would be here who respond to this survey would say that they believe that that relationship is acceptable. Um, Third, I believe that same-sex attracted gay LGBTQ people are uh, born that way. We explored that a little bit already, and the idea that um, we all have a sin nature. There might be a predisposition. There's no way to say one way or another, but certainly with our understanding, our doctrine, our theology of original sin and um, and the the marred nature of our of our human um, in our humanness. It's not hard to believe that this could be true, okay? 27% of people believe that. Um, I believe that same-sex attraction is a choice of 57%. Again, we dealt with that, and um, again, just because you might be born a certain way doesn't mean you don't also have ch- choices to act upon that or not, and, and we talked about that last week. Uh, 57% of people would, would believe that, Um And then if if you're not into one of those two options, which I think it's either you're born that way or it's a choice, it seems to be an either or, but 5% of people were honest enough to say, I don't know whether it is or not, whether it's sin or not, which meant 11% of people didn't put anything down um, on one of those three options. And I think that betrays just a little bit of the confusing nature of all of this and how we're all just trying to work it out and figure out exactly uh, where we land on all of this. And then 46% of people said, I have a close friend or family member who identifies as being gay um, or same-sex attracted, 46%. Um, 4.5% of people, pretty much 4.5% said, I, I personally have same-sex attraction. That's right here. It represents 12 people uh, in the room. And then uh, four people not quite 2% would say that I not only have the attraction, but I identify as being gay. Now, what I find um, really helpful in all of that, it's a very unscientific survey, I get that uh, maybe we could have been better in the wording of all of it, um, But what we see is that even though a majority of people hold to this very traditional, what some would call conservative view of the same-sex question, there are still those who are here and those who are following along uh, with this series who are not here in the room, um, who are uh, wrestling with this question very personally, that either they... Have same-sex attraction, or are trying to figure out how that's supposed to go in their life, or they're fully identified as as being gay. And this message really today is is directed specifically at those who would be struggling with, or would have same-sex attraction. They are the ones who are going to be asking the question, uh, "What if I am same-sex attracted?" But it's also for everyone because that's such a small percentage relative to everyone else. It's also for everyone else who cares about such a person. Understanding that, that perhaps 12 or so people or maybe more who didn't feel comfortable even answering an anonymous survey are struggling with this in one way or another in their life. And we ought to really care about that. Because... Someone near you, if you're not struggling with it, someone near you is. Someone you love is. Maybe someone who has never said it to anyone else, but they're in your small group. Someone in your family. Someone perhaps that you care about deeply. And not to mention that everything we're going to talk about today as we, as we, as we kind of wrestle down what it means to be same sex attracted and, and kind of working that out in our lives, these principles, even though the specific illustrations and the quotes and all of the details of what we're going to talk about pertain to same-sex attraction, uh, the, the principles behind it all really can be applied to any area of temptation in your life. And so we've already established that um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many sinners in the room? Just raise your hand. Okay. A few of you. Um, and we're all in need of God's grace. How many people in need of God's grace this morning? All of us. Uh, we're all in need of God's grace. And um, and so with that as kind of the backdrop, that's what we're going to go after today. What if I'm same-sex attracted? And um, why don't we pray? And then we'll start getting into what God has for us today. Uh, Father, you made sure uh, in your word that we knew that if we ever got to a place where we lacked wisdom, where we felt like we were at the end of our own resources to understand what's in front of us, that all we needed to do was to ask for that wisdom. And you would give it to us. Your word says you would give it to us generously and without reproach, without finding fault in us. And God, I know that that, even that request for wisdom comes in the context of of trials and temptations that we would face in this life. And so that's exactly where we find ourselves, Father, seeking to wrestle down this issue of same-sex attraction. It is beyond us to sort out all the details of it. And so, God, what we need from you right now is wisdom. Father, please give us wisdom. Generously. We need it. We thank you that your word contains this wisdom. Give us insight now. May your Holy Spirit show us what we should believe and how we ought to live this out in our lives. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. What if I am same-sex attracted? Uh, we have to start here. Um, acting on your attraction is sin. Now, we established this last week, had a whole message on this. I don't need to go over all of that again, but let me summarize this with a quote from a young man named Wesley Hill. And uh, he is um, a young man who's written extensively on this. He has a great book called Washed and Waiting. This is on our resource page that I would highly recommend to anyone who has same-sex attraction or anyone who wants to understand that better. The heart of a person who has that, Wesley Hill would describe himself as a A celibate gay Christian. That would be the tag that he would put on himself. And so he writes this. This is going to help us summarize last week. Um, uh, Homosexuality was not God's original creative intention for humanity. It is, on the contrary, a tragic sign of human nature and relationships being fractured by sin. Homosexual practice, he says, goes against God's express will for all human beings, especially those who trust in Christ. Now, that's coming from someone who is same-sex attracted, who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's telling us in no uncertain terms that he understands this to be against God's will and a sin issue. Now, back to our point, acting on your attraction is sin, that quote alone is going to be our review of, of where we landed last week. But the wording of this first point is so important. Acting, acting on your attraction is sin. But simply having the attraction is not sin. Okay? Simply having the attraction is not sin. Scripture, right? That's how we're going to arrive at that conclusion. So Romans chapter 8 is really the key passage that's going to help us with this. Um, check this out in Romans eight twenty two and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Okay, those of us who are saved, we have the Holy Spirit in us, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I love the word groaning. The older I get, the more I tend to groan. Is that those over 50? True? Okay, I understand this verse better every every year I live. The groaning is because we're under the influence of sin in the world. We're feeling the effects of sin in the world. I mean, did you feel the effects of sin in the world this week? You may not have thought about it as that, but you all experienced the effects of sin, the groaning, the creation groaning and the inner groaning that what we have right now is not perfect. Far from it, in fact, it's tainted by sin. Uh, any of you, anybody here suffering with cold or, or some sickness of some kind right now, okay? It's groaning. It's the groaning of the creation, it's the effect. Of sin in the world that that we have viruses and there there are uh, nasty bacterias and there are illnesses that affect us. Or how many of you felt sad this week? There was sorrow in your life. God didn't intend that. It's the effect of sin in the world. How many of you felt some kind of loss this week? Or how many of you felt lonely? It's not what God intended. It's the effects of sin in the world. How many of you felt pain? Or as I mentioned already, the effects of aging. That's the groaning in our lives. It's the groaning of this world. We all face the effects of sin. Without tenacity, without faith, the natural inclination of our heart, in fact is to drift deeper and deeper into the groanings, into the effects of sins. In fact, we natural, the natural tendency of our heart is toward darkness, not light, toward evil not good, away from God, not toward him. I mean that's also the effect of sin. Its its pull and its draw on us is so intense that on our own we can't resist it. That's the effects of sin in the world. We can put it this way. Uh, this place where we live is a mess. And it's not getting better. It's not getting better. It's not going to get better until Jesus comes back. And So we we look at Romans 8 and we understand that there is a groaning, there is a there is an effect of sin in this world and in our lives that in and of itself is not sin. Pain is not sin. Sorrow is not sin. The effects of aging are not sin, but they are the effects of sin. And so we can say this, uh, categorically from this verse, being affected by sin is not sin. True? Being affected by sin is not sin. Now that's important to us because we're building this case for Acting on attraction is sin, but having the attraction is not. Secondly, let's look at this. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews is a preacher. Hebrews is a sermon. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's Jesus. He's the high priest. He was tempted the same way we were in every way that we are he was tempted yet he did not sin unlike us jesus was tempted but he didn't give in his weakness was hunger okay just to pick one of the three temptations you remember these from matthew chapter 4 luke chapter 4 his weakness in one of the temptations was hunger he had spent 40 days fasting so he was the text tells us he was hungry And so the evil one comes along and offers him bread. I mean, if you haven't eaten for a long time, the smell of bread seems like the most awesome thing in the world. Jesus was tempted by it. He was. We know the temptations were real. He's hungry. He wants the bread. Let me say it this way. See if this makes sense to you because of what we're trying to argue here and lock down. Just change the word tempted to attract it. Jesus was attracted to the bread. When I'm hungry, I'm attracted to food. I find it to be beautiful. (laughs) Do you not? Clearly you must because like 90% of all Instagram pictures are food. People are in love with food. They're attracted to it. But listen, simply being attracted to it. Jesus was attracted to the bread. I've substituted out the word tempted. But just being attracted to it is not, it's not sin. He didn't eat it. If he had eaten it, he would have given in to the temptation. And so we can lay down this principle then. Um, being tempted to sin is not sin. Agree? Being tempted to sin is not, it's not sin. And then this in James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, each person is tempted. We we begin to see this process now. James 1 teaches us a process that goes from being attracted to something, tempted by it, even desiring it, to actually fulfilling that and sinning. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, he uses this birthing analogy, Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so we can say this from James 1 being desirous of sin, desirous of something that is sinful, even desiring it is not sin. It's only when I allow the desire to be conceived in my mind, to use the illustration that James uses, when I conceive of it, in other words, now I begin to dwell on the thought, I begin to think about how I can indulge myself in the desire. Having the desire isn't the problem, it's thinking about it, letting it conceive in my mind, and then even allowing that to birth into full-blown sin. Either I do that in my mind because we know that what Jesus said about lusting after a woman, it's the same as committing adultery. So I I conceive of it. I, I, I own it now. It, I'm, I'm fantasizing about it. It's, I've, I've now sinned in my mind, or indeed in my actions, now it comes to fruition. It gives birth to sin. And we can see in the rest of the verse that nothing good ever comes from that. The end of that is Death, apart from my relationship with Christ. Now, if I take that all, because we're, we're running this all through this grid of same-sex attraction, and we're trying to make the point here that attraction is not sin. So if I say it more generally and take it out of the sexual realm, I, I would say it like this. Being attracted to something indicates a desire, but not necessarily a dwelling on or acting upon, and therefore is not sin. But when you do act on it, in thought or deed, you have sin. All right. So now that's so important as we begin to understand even identity and how people who have same sex attraction, how they identify, how they wrestle this through. If we want to have a heart of empathy and we want to move beyond just think of, thinking of this in terms of behavior, we have to start thinking of it in terms of identity. We're beginning to understand a little bit about where people come from when they have same sex attraction. And so we have to understand this. Secondly, that identifying by your attraction is short-sighted. So if you're here and you've identified yourself as, and this this would even respond directly to Wesley Hill, who calls himself a gay Christian, celibate, but gay Christian, and he hyphenates that, puts those words together. And there are quite a number in in the same-sex attraction community who would, identify in the same way that Wesley Hill does and others who would say I don't want to put that on myself and so there is a bit of a wrestling match even over this but I would just say without, without this being a hill that I would die on okay, I, don't, I don't want to come to this with some kind of categorical pronouncement that I think it's always wrong if you hyphenate and put gay Christian I, I just wouldn't go that far I would say that it's It's a matter of liberty, and I would respect anybody who would see this so tied up in their human pre-eternity identity that they would think that that was helpful to call themselves that. I, I just wouldn't argue that point. But that said, I'm pretty convinced from the word that our identity needs to be in Jesus Christ no matter what our attractions are. Amen? Our identity needs to be in Jesus Christ no matter what attractions we have. Here's some great verses that I think are going to help us lock this down. Galatians three twenty six through twenty nine. Apostle Paul writes, "For in Christ Jesus you you are all sons of God, uh, men and women. The son of God thing is a reference to being an heir. It's not a gender thing. It's, it's not a, a, a son and daughter thing. It's about it's about being a firstborn." the recipient of all the promises, the big inheritance that's coming our way. That's why he uses that phrase. And it comes to those, the people he's addressing, are those who are genuine followers of Christ. You've, you've been to the cross. You've seen what Jesus did for you. You've accepted his blood as the sacrifice for your sins, his life for yours. You've taken on the forgiveness of Christ, received the grace that he's received to you. That's who he's talking to here. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so now you've been baptized in him, you have the Holy Spirit, you're in Christ. Because you're in Christ, you are now not these three categories of identity that he says next. Okay, notice them. First, there's neither Jew nor Greek. That's the first one. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Notice, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, these verses are verses about identity. And all of us in this room, if we're followers of Christ, we ought to have the I'm in Christ identity on us. I'm a son of God. I'm an heir of the promise. These are great identity tags to put on us. But what we default to in our humanity, and because we're still living here, is we default to these other identities on a pretty regular basis. So here are the three categories. First of all, he talks about neither Jew nor Greek. So he's talking about, this is the the category or the identity of ethnicity. We do this to people all the time. We do this to ourselves. We see ourselves according to our ethnic, our racial background. So that's one category. The second category is there's neither slave nor free. We don't have slavery today in this country. Uh, by God's grace, or slavery in a lot of other parts of the country. But really, this is just a, a socioeconomic. Where do you land in terms of the so- social stratas of your, of your society? Are you employed? Are you retired? Are you underemployed? Are you unemployed? Are you rich? Are you poor? Okay, it's socioeconomic is what he's saying. And what Paul is saying is that this, that's a category for you to think about yourself in, but in terms of the kingdom of God, uh, socioeconomic doesn't apply. Then he says, thirdly, there's no male and female, no no gender categories though we do this as a matter of course in our society there's male and there's female god made us this way and we are a complement to one another but in eternity it's not going to be that way we're not going to be thinking about those categories at all to Paul's really saying here, none of these are legit ways for believers to be ultimately identifying themselves. It isn't, you know, I'm a Canadian Christian or an American Christian or a British Christian. I, I'm not attaching my ethnicity to the word Christian. Or I, I'm not going around uh, introducing myself during the greeting time here as, uh, good morning, I'm a male member of this church. Good morning. In case you didn't notice, I'm a female Christian. We're not doing that. We're not identifying according to our, our gender in the, that way. we're certainly, or we ought not, to be going around saying I'm a wealthy or I'm a poor Christian. You see, the primary way we identify ourselves according to the text here is as an heir of God's promise. I'm a son of God. I belong to Him. I'm a child of the King. Because in heaven we understand there's no class structure. We know from other passages, there's no um, marriage in heaven. There's no giving in marriage. There is an indication in the book of Revelation that our ethnicity, whatever we look like here, is going to be recognizable in heaven. But I have a feeling that it's not relevant. It's just accepted. Amen. Yeah? Now That said, many who have same-sex attraction see their sexuality as a massive part of who they are. For some, their sexuality trumps anything that God says, and so they are gay, period. And and what God says doesn't matter. Others are more in the Wesley Hill camp, where they are genuine followers of Christ and 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 yet they're willing to put this gay moniker onto themselves others resist that fiercely saying instead um i'm a christ follower who has same-sex attraction but not hyphenating the christ follower part but still acknowledging that this is kind of part of who they are now wesley hill again let's I take a look at something he said about this. He says, I'm a Christian, and even though again he hyphenates, celibate gay Christian, he says, I'm a Christian before I'm anything else. My homosexuality is part of my makeup, a facet of my personality. One day I believe, whether in this life or in the resurrection, it will fade away. But my identity as a Christian, someone incorporated into Christ's body by his spirit, will remain. Amen? True for all of us, no matter what attractions. That we have. That's the right emphasis according to God's word. And anyone with same-sex attraction who is attaching this to their identity, I have a feeling that all that is, with all due respect and with deep love for anyone who has uh, this question in their own life, um, what they have are the effects of the groaning in this world. And they're just trying to figure it out and find their place. And we'll talk next week about the kind of love and compassion we need to have for one another because of that groaning that we're all experiencing. Amen? All right. So, battling your attraction then is essential. Um, we've, we've said that um, acting on the attraction is sin, identifying by the attraction is short sighted at best. Uh, battling your attraction then is essential. Another young man uh, who's writing extensively, a uh, a follower of Christ, um, he said this, Nick Rowan said, A same-sex attraction should be treated like any temptation to sin. They should be fought with blood earnestness. I love that phrase. They should be fought with blood earnestness in a way that recognizes the deceitfulness of the heart and the finitude or limitations of the mind. So this is a this is a young man who's, who wrestles with same-sex attraction. He's writing... And he's trying to help us understand that this is going to be a tenacious battle. With blood earnestness, we need to come to this battle. I would say that this is true for all of us, no matter what temptations you have going on in your life. We need to fight with endurance, with tenacity, with determination. The sins that would seek to consume us. And so battling your attraction is essential. Uh, First, separate yourself from temptation and sin get separate from it. Now I know from 1 Corinthians 10:13 that God said this, he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape. I love that God promised us that, but the reality is some people don't avail themselves of the ways of escape. And they default into thinking that God's simply going to deliver them miraculously and instantaneously from their temptations. And while that happens to some people, the majority of us could testify in this room, we could testify that the core sins that are in our lives end up being a lifelong battle. So that's why this endurance, this tenacity, this blood feud that we really have with our sin. We need to take advantage of the way of escape that God provides for us. You have to avail yourself of it. So in Matthew 5.30, Jesus said, in in what was really shocking teaching, He said, if your hand causes you to sin, what did He say? Cut it off if your eye causes you to sin pluck it out now that he's not talking about self-mutilation in case any of you are like literalists about the bible okay he is not advocating the actual removal of limbs okay that is not what the text is saying but he is saying and and what what some have called a radical amputation he is saying that you need to cut off the sources of sin in your life. You need to separate yourself, sever yourself from anything that's going to lead you down a path toward, towards sin and separation from God. Paul said it this way in, in 2 Timothy 2.22, just a quick, flee youthful passions. Flee! Like, run away. From anything that causes you to sin. And, and our challenge is that, that we have this dalliance with sin. We, we flirt with it. We keep it around. So that if we want to just take a peek in. Just take a, I'm just going to look at it. We, 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 we skirt around the edges of it. We keep it available to us just in case. It's a dangerous business. Flee it. Cut it off. Take the way of escape. How many different ways does Jesus or Paul have to say it to us? Before we get it, that we need to separate ourselves from temptation and sin. And so this is what I would just say. If there are any in this room or any who are listening, watching right now, who are same-sex attracted, then you need to do everything you possibly can to separate yourself from the things that are allowing you, that are causing you to explore that same-sex sexuality. You need to flee it. Whatever you're reading, whatever places you're going online or in real life, whoever whoever's voice you're listening to that, that is encouraging you, telling you to To explore your sexuality further, I'm I'm going to tell you, stop right where you are and turn 180 away from it. Flee it. Take the way of escape. Cut off the sources of temptation in your life. Now, this has huge implications to simply say it's just not sufficient just to say, stop doing it. I mean, when is that ever sufficient for any sin issue that we would ever face? And, and this one speaks to deep rooted notions of identity and and of relationship. So it's not sufficient that we just say, stop. It's not sufficient that we would ever even say, and, and we're going to go into this a lot more next week. It's not sufficient that we would ever just say, oh, we'll just be attracted to somebody of the opposite sex. Stop looking at men and start being attracted to women. It's not working that way. It's a simplistic answer that that doesn't help really at all. I mean, for some, because there's absolutely no opposite sex sex attraction, and if none ever comes for them, that may mean lifelong. I want you to understand the implications. That may mean lifelong celibacy. I can't even imagine. And some of you have been called to that. Some of you are single. Not necessarily a call you want it. But whether you're heterosexual or or homosexual. And, and singleness is a tough thing. Anything I read about it. Because I, I, I'm not personally experiencing it. I'm not claiming to understand it experientially. But I'm trying to enter into the challenge that that this teaching provides for those who are willing to accept what God's Word says and to flee the temptations that are in their lives. Some professing same-sex attracted Christians can't bear the thought of that. Yet this Nick Rowan, he said celibacy, and I love his attitude about it, he's a young man himself, Celibacy is a life-giving path to joy and fulfillment and community in Jesus. He says, now we're getting somewhere. How powerful would it be if gay and straight Christians, together with one voice, testified, yes, I have sexual urges, but they do not rule my life because Jesus is better. Notice he said that about heterosexual and because there, there are a lot of folks who are not same-sex attracted but are are. As obsessed with sex or more. Who according to their sexual appetites are demonstrating that Jesus isn't better. That I need this other thing to somehow satisfy my life. He makes a great point. And then with just such, I, I just picture, I don't know this Nick Rohn guy. But I just picture he must be some kind of like ridiculous, eternal, optimist, glass half full guy celibacy is not primarily a lack but an invitation to deep relationships intentional community and sacrificial love again more on all of that next week and how we can help those who make this decision to separate themselves from temptation and sin Um, if you're going to take out if you're going to flee if you're going to cut off then you also need to add back in and that's where we go next, fill your heart and mind with God's word. The radical amputation, the fleeing, has to be backfilled with good things. And it always starts with God's word. I mean, If you go back to the temptation, Jesus in the wilderness, he, of course, combats all three temptations with, with Scripture, right? In fact, on a couple of occasions, the the devil comes at him with scripture and he uses scripture to interpret scripture like we saw last week and refutes the evil one with more scripture. And so Jesus knew that in order to combat the tempter, uh, we need to uh, be uh, saturating our lives with the word of God. So I love this verse you probably learned it. Uh, way back when in your Sunday school classes or at Awana, Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. King James Version, right? That's pretty good, right? some of you only know it that way i've stored up your word in my heart that i wouldn't that i might not sin against you and so to the extent that you read the word of god to the extent that you get yourself under the teaching of the word of god to the extent that you study it yourself and it's part of your regular devotional time before the lord personal worship to the extent that you memorize the Word of God, to the extent that you meditate on, not just rote memory, but I'm thinking about it, I'm allowing it to be in my heart and to fill my thought life, to the extent that you do all of that, you will be able to battle same-sex attraction in your life. And the opposite is true. That if you are not saturating, your life with the Word of God, then you can have no reasonable expectation of gaining victory over the attraction, over any temptation in your life. That seems awfully sim- simplistic. Just read the Bible. Read the Bible. But, th- but these are the words of life to us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This book points to Him. There's salvation in no other. And, and, and these scriptures testify to who Christ is. So how could we expect to have any victory over any temptation if we're not filling our life, filling our heart and mind with the Word of God? It's, it's this book that renews us. Renews our thinking. Romans 12:2. do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, because we know that the battle over all of this is in our minds. The, the emotions drive it for those who are same sex attracted. The experience or pragmatics of the situation steer it and direct it. Because of this, I need to act in this way. Be, because this is happening to this person, uh, I need to make this decision. And we all feel very emotional about it. But but ultimately the battle's right here that I allow the emotions and the experience to, to decide for me. And I make up my mind. Or I can allow the Word of God to wash over me, renewing my mind and understanding that my mind is tainted by by sin in the world as well. That my mind is groaning under the weight of all of this. And that God's objective, His perspective, His objective way of seeing this, His perspective as the Creator of all things, His understanding of who we are, not tainted by sin, who we ought to be, that's the word I need. I need the one who is perfectly objective about this. Not emotionally driven. Not, not driven by circumstances, but the one who understands me and allowing His word to, to transform my mind rather than being conformed to what the world is saying about all of this. And then to allow, I love Colossians 3.16, just to allow the word of God to dwell in me richly let the word of christ dwell in you richly there's no substitute for that there's no other way to make all of this happen it's it is so basic but fill your heart and mind with the word of god and then this one's so important um involve yourself in uncommon community Uh, god doesn't intend for us to go it alone he never did Um, last week we we used those three examples of different kind of literature and I talked about poetry and uh, six or eight of you confessed that you read poetry. But I'm going to bring back a line from that poem that I cited, John Donne's poem, No Man is an Island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. The the poem is a don't-go-it-alone poem. The poem is independence is bad, autonomy is disastrous. The poem is, is an appeal to us to understand that, that as human beings, and if we apply this more narrowly to the church, that we are one. Isn't that awesome? You understand poetry now. Isn't that great? Probably the first time in some of your lives that you ever understood a poem. But, but, but God wants us, if we're going to win the battle over any attraction, to be in uncommon community, to be in fellowship, to be one with the church. Because there's no doubt that among the most brutal battles that, are, that, that will be faced by those who are same-sex attracted is the battle for, for loneliness, it's compassion, companionship and relationship. We saw in Genesis 2, God said after he created Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. So he made a helper that was suitable for him, a perfect complement for him. What God was saying is that for all of us, this sense of being alone is so devastating to who we are. And in the perfect creation that he made, there was no loneliness Because there was perfect companionship. And so what the church is supposed to be is is this community, this fellowship, this having all things in common, this family of people who are for each other in such an extraordinary way with love as the defining characteristic by which it is known so that no one would ever suffer under the weight and pain of loneliness, even if they spend the rest of their lives being single, celibate, and perhaps even living alone. We're going to look at all of this a lot more again next week. But the problem that I see is that in in the past, many in the church who have struggled with same-sex attraction have just heard kind of like the harsh words and the categorical statements. They've heard the word abomination and unnatural just popped out of the text beyond any other words that have ever been spoken. That the messages that have been preached in the past concerning homosexuality have always been just the hard edge without any of the grace or any of the love that comes in the full context of the scriptures. There's been a lack of compassion and empathy. And so because of that, we couldn't describe ourselves, I'm talking about the church at large, we certainly couldn't describe ourselves as being an uncommon community in the sense that we've been welcome, welcoming to people who actually are struggling with real sin issues. And by the way, that's all of us. And so those who have been same-sex attracted have actually fled not from their temptation, they've actually fled from the church. Why would I stay there, they would say. Going there just makes me feel worse about myself. It's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for any of us to be alone. If you have same-sex attraction, you need to be in community with other Christ followers. You need to be in the church. You need to be in small groups. You need to be worshiping and walking and working for Christ, just as anyone would. You need to fold yourself into what God has going on here in the church of Jesus Christ. And you need to be transparent. You need to be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. Not with everybody, but with some who would understand the attractions you have and would walk with you through that. So that you always felt like there's someone I can talk to. There's someone I can be perfectly transparent with and feel the unconditional love of Christ in doing so. Now, that's the one side of it, because this message is about those who are attracted, same-sex attracted, and the struggle you're having. The other side of that is what we're going to look at next week, the receiving of people when they confess such things. When we love each other despite and through our mutual struggles, it's a proclamation to the world about the love of Christ, that defining characteristic about who we are. John 13:35. Jesus said, By this all men will know, the whole world's going to know, that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Love is it. The radical love of the followers of Christ that draws even more people into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I, I love the potential for that. I love the awesome thought of that, that as we continue to build uncommon community here at Harvest, that it would be such a welcoming place to people with same-sex attraction, to work that out before the Lord. Don't you want it to be that place? that's my desire. I don't want any more people walking away from the church with this sin issue unresolved. Well, um, I'm going to add some resources to to our webpage this week that are going to help with this. And I've only scratched the surface of all of this, and um, a couple of key websites that will be linked on that resource page for those who are same sex attracted. One very helpful site, uh, livingout.org, uh, comes out of the UK and is a bunch of uh, uh, men and women who are same sex attracted and have kind of worked this out in their life. Uh, some of them are ministers and pastors and the uh, lay leaders in their churches. And um, there's a number of video testimonies and article resources that I think are going to be really helpful to you. And then some blog posts a little bit more at a at kind of a higher intellectual level. Um, and this is uh, really Wesley Hill is part of this site. It's called SpiritualFriendship.org. Very, very helpful. Um, very helpful as well. So I would just commend that uh, to you as well. Well, let's, Let's look at this finally. And this, I don't want this last point to be some kind of vain hope. But overcoming your attraction is going to happen. It is. I'm not a purveyor of false hope, but I know these things to be true. God can help and God can heal anyone with any attraction. He can heal you and He can turn your same-sex attraction into an attraction for the opposite sex. He can. And He has done that. And there are video stories on the livingout.org website that share some of those exact stories of how God transformed a same-sex attraction into an opposite-sex attraction. And people who were once in the gay lifestyle are now in heterosexual marriages with children and thriving Finding blessing in the Lord. And so that is possible. But it doesn't always happen that way. That there are always those for whom this becomes a lifelong battle with temptation and sin. And so we can't, we can't just say it happens this way for everyone. It's not everyone's journey. But I can say that he will ultimately heal. Heal. That God will ultimately turn all of our attractions, all of our affections on him. And I love 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes. Though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want the trajectory of our life to be. The, 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 The praise, the glory, the honor, the perfection, the restoration, the full redemption that comes when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth and takes us to be with him or we pass from this life and into an eternity where every affection, every attraction is on him. We have to look beyond this life to the next to really see that. All right. Um, hopefully that's helpful. And I feel very, I just want to tell you again, I feel very inadequate uh, trying to talk us through all of that, not having had that experience. Um, but uh, these are the words of life from the Scriptures. Amen. I'm going to invite Roger to come right now. We're going to spend the last few minutes just answering a few questions. Um
1: Thank you, Todd. Um, once again, uh, helpful and excellent. Uh, it just seems, that, you know, you've already mentioned this, that, that there's, uh, this is such a struggle for so many. And uh, I'm just thinking of some uh, different ones that we know uh, who just seem to live in such a different context than many of our lives here And so uh, this question comes up, and a number of people actually wrote in One asked this question, and there's a comment that uh, goes with it. Why is it that uh, people, especially guys, feel the pressure of same-sex attraction or feel like they need to become homosexual if they are in the arts, such as dance and drama? A similar observation was made by someone else who wrote, I was a figure skater, and 14 of my friends came out of the closet in one year. Why are there some contexts that just seem more pressured?
0: Well, thanks for laying out that minefield. That's <laughs> that's my job. There's no, <laughs> I think there's like no way to not blow up in the next few moments here, because um, we're really dealing with stereotypes that are seem to be true. That when you look at it, there's, I mean, you can't. I mean, this is a person writing and saying that 14 friends in in figure skating come out in one year. I mean, you can't deny. The experience of that, it happens. We tend to see more people kind of come out from certain areas. I I get it. Um, So I I guess it's for me, it's almost like a chicken and the egg thing. What comes first? The the same sex attraction, the predisposition towards being gay. Does that come first or is it the influence we really get into? it, It becomes a question of nature and nurture of genetic versus environmental influences and which comes first. And the science isn't precise and all we have is kind of experience, empirical data to kind of look at and go, this seems to be true. But I guess all I would say for those of you who are followers of Christ, because I I can't answer the precise question, why does it seem? I don't know. Um, But what I I can kind of rewind it to what I said about fleeing temptation, fleeing youthful passions, um, cutting off, I would just say maybe more to parents is um, you need to be careful about what influences you put your children under. And so if if there's um, a sense that this environment, whatever it is, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be about the same sex question, but if any environment that you're placing your children in is is an environment that is devoid of God or leading them away from God or anti-God in some way. I mean, if, if you're just, you're setting them up for something. And I'm not talking about putting our kids in bubble wrap and keeping them away from all influences. We still have to be salt and light in our world. Okay, we still need to bring the light of Jesus Christ to those who don't have it. But our children, okay, we can't use our children as guinea pigs for that. And we can't use our children as an excuse for our what we ought to be doing evangelistically. Okay, we're asking very often, most parents, because very few of us are really good at evangelism. And but you're using that evangelism excuse when you yourself don't really ever witness. Am I being too hard here? I haven't really preached for a while. I've been sitting in this chair for three weeks. So <laughs> if I start to go into preach, understand? Yeah. And parents, let's be careful about the influences that we're. We're putting our children uh, through. So, so you might be saying that um, while it
1: seems that certain contexts drive towards that, maybe we pick those contexts because that's where our interests lie. And so it's a bit of, bit of both.
0: Challenging so. question no matter what, yeah. for sure.
1: Well, that kind of brings up the n- next question. Can people actually overcome their orientation or same-sex attraction and become heterosexual? Isn't isn't that the goal?
0: Would, would we say that's the goal? Well, and I kind of dealt with that already. And I, I really appreciate again, Wesley Hill, who who uh, wrote this book. And again, he identifies as a gay celibate, gay Christian. He, he just says this also in the book. He said, I'm still in the midst of an agonizing and confusing period of trying to forge an identity for myself as a Christian who wrestles with homosexuality. And so I think he has a sense in his own life that this could be a lifelong thing for him. And he's not really expecting. He's, he is absolutely not attracted to women. And and yet I, we hear the other stories of those who are, who where it's transformed. And so I just don't think we can come up with any hard and fast rules to say, in every situation, this is the way it's going to play out for you. If you confess this, if you deal with it, if you cut off the source if you stay away from, from all of the temptations then somehow God is going to turn you know your heart towards uh, men if you're a lesbian or if you're a gay male you can turn your heart towards women I, no one can make that promise on this side of eternity hmm. alright well uh, one
1: more uh, you raised a question in week one and two about uh, celibate same sex attracted Christians living together for economic companionship purposes so is is that a good idea or
0: not? Well, including that in the first message seemed like a good idea at the time, but then having to answer the question seems like not a great idea now um, okay, so let me let's take it out of the let's take it out of the same sex realm and and let me ask you a question because you're here and they don't have a microphone um If if we took it out of of the homosexual realm and we brought it into the heterosexual realm, would we say, as believers, that it would be a good idea for a young man and a young woman who are not romantically involved, that it's a good idea for them to get an apartment together? We would say, um, not a great idea. Not a great idea. To use a a business word, we would say that that's not a best practice. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
1: That that reminds me of... uh, um, uh, a video teaching by Andy Stanley who uh, called the best question ever. And uh, so it, I would say in light of your past experiences and your future hopes and dreams and your present circumstances, what is the best thing to do? Right. And that would not be the best thing to do.
0: Right. It would, and, and I think there are some verses questions. that would even inform us, you know, on this, I would think of first Thessalonians 522, where we would abstain from every form of evil mm-hmm. and, and, and then if we if we throw into that Romans thirteen fourteen, um, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify uh, its desires, and I don't want to make provision for it. I don't want to give the appearance of now, that said, um, i was I was reading this morning again in in Wesley Hill's book, um, the story of a, a young man who um, the most agonizing thing for him is going home at the end of the day into his apartment. He doesn't live with anybody else. And he says he stays out as long as he can at night until he's absolutely exhausted so that when he goes to bed, he'll fall immediately to sleep because he can't cope with the idea of not sleeping with somebody and not having the companionship.
1: Now, That's a struggle that's so real. And uh, the verse that came to mind for me was Hebrews 12.4. We often uh, quote the ones just previous looking to Jesus. Um, but uh, the author of Hebrews says, You have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. that That's that blood earnest right. struggle. And I, I guess I would say I'm somewhat convicted about the fact that I think they should should struggle all the way with their sin. But I'm not really sure that I'm prepared to struggle right. that way with my sin. Right. And that's the, perhaps the, the convicting point of uh, this message. And, today. and
0: one, of the, one of the things that's being suggested here is, is that, because it, it's, it's a bit pious for us to say, well, just, just look to Jesus and he'll be you know all that to you. And because we really are wired up, some of us more than others, for physical touch. We're wired up for human interaction. And while our God is awesome in every way, um, he's, not, he's not physically present here with us. And that's why, and again, we're going to get to this next week, that's why we have each other. The church has to be this. And beyond that, there are there are some, um, and again, through this uh, spiritualfriendship.org website, there are some who are now making suggestions about little communities of people. So maybe... Uh, two, or not just two, but maybe three or four um, uh, folks who are struggling with the same-sex attraction issue would live together, in community, buy a home, get an apartment, but be together so that 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 physical compassion uh, um, companionship, that that interaction that some of us who are married just honestly we just take it for granted. A quick squeeze of the hand a hug at night, um, the ability to even have a conversation, to bear the load together of managing the house, all of that I can so often take for granted. And so can we find a more creative way beyond just one-in-one being in an apartment together of, of creating small communities of people that could be this for one another beyond the church itself? So hopefully that's a bit of an answer. Yeah, hey, listen, this is this is the way I just want to close this. Um, Close our time here today. We sang some great worship songs and I'm grateful. Uh, Andrew, thanks for leading us this morning. Um, can we just put up the bridge to, um, to that last song uh, that we sang together? And just, just look at this together. And I want these to be, could this just be our prayers we close as we, as we cry out to God? You hear the cry of every broken heart. You give the hopeless soul a brand new start. You lead the captive in your freedom song. This is who you are. And in the night when all our hope is lost, you're the one who won't give up on us. You hold the orphan in your loving arms. This is who you are.